extra chance to those who haven't recalibrated on the distance it takes from getting coffee downstairs to coming back upstairs. Or while uh, we're getting ready, if you have a Bible in front of you, then please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 9 of that book in the Old Testament. Uh, for those who uh, have been with us week in, week out, you'll know that we are working through a message series in this book. Uh, it's been a few weeks actually since we've been in Ecclesiastes for various reasons. We've had a couple of other um, short messages uh, in between. But this morning we return and pick up where we left off, so we start in, in chapter 9. Uh, the words we projected, but if um, you don't have a Bible and would like one, then we'd love to get a Bible into your hands as well. Um, but there are some my Bibles at the back as well if anybody needs to uh, have a Bible to reference. So let me read uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and then I'll pray and ask for God's help as we open and understand this passage together. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 1. The preacher says, But all of this I laid to heart. Examine it, it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love, <clears throat> all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that each week we can look to you and know that you are ready to address us. Thank you for this passage in this book of Ecclesiastes. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help me speak your word clearly and faithfully. And you'd give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would instruct us and show us this morning. Do this, we pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, do keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, we'll look at it, back to it regularly. And before we do, I want to 
tell you a little bit about uh, something that I did back in college many years ago now. Um, but in my last year at college, I was keen to make sure that before we graduated and left, that I had an opportunity to share my... <coughs> excuse me. Share my <coughs> excuse me a second. That's better. That I had an opportunity to share my Christian faith with my friends. So I invited uh, a dozen or so of my classmates to what was going to be an evangelistic dinner and discussion in my uh, college dorm. And so that they knew what they were being invited to, I included a, uh, <clears throat> I gave them a written invitation, and I included a little quote uh, in my invitation. This wasn't an original idea with me. <clears throat> it was something that I'd heard from somebody else, and I, I just thought it was a good one, so I copied it. It was a tongue-in-cheek reference to an English high society advice from the book uh, called Debrett's Etiquette and Modern Manners, and I think we have it to project, and I'll read it to you in case you can't read that. So my invitation included these words. It said, in earlier years, quoting from Debrett's Etiquette, and I'll put in my high society English voice for you, it says, in earlier years, there were four topics of conversation that were discouraged in society that was both polite and mixed. Servants, illness, religion, and politics. There was a strict taboo in most circles on sex. While there has been a sharp decline in the popularity of discussing servant problems, the others are, with the exception of illness, some of the greatest subjects for conversation that have ever existed, and nowadays they are fair game. And at the bottom of my invitation, I wrote something like this. I said, come and join me and discuss the no longer taboo subject of religion, and if time allows, we'll discuss sex and other topics too. And before you judge me for having weird dinner parties or weird invitations, I will tell you that everybody came to that party that I invited. So I may be weird, but at least I wasn't the only one. Now, the reason I share that is because in today's passage, the preacher in Ecclesiastes invites us to consider his reflections on a subject which is typically considered taboo in polite and mixed company. And it's not just the subject of illness, but it's where illness can lead. It's the subject of death. And while that's not a cheery or pleasant subject, initially at least, I can say with complete confidence that this one subject, regardless of age, gender, political persuasion, religious beliefs, this one subject applies to 100% of the people listening to this message this morning. Whether you're here, whether you're online, whether you're going to be listening to this six months from now, this passage, and through it we believe, God's address to us is one of, on one of the few experiences that we are all guaranteed to face in life. And so we would, would do well to pay attention and listen. I didn't plan it this way. We didn't plan it as we were planning out our series in Ecclesiastes, but it's timely, given this subject, and given this weekend being Memorial Day weekend, where we give time to reflect and remember those who have given their lives in service to this country. 
God's word and the Christian faith speaks into the realities that are all around us. And I'd say just at the beginning that I want to encourage you to be skeptical of any view of the world, whether it is religious, philosophical, political, scientific, or any other that claims to be a complete package and sufficient to hold you and guide you through life if it does not speak to all of life or if it doesn't at least give a robust interpretation of all of life, all of life holds. The claims of the Christian faith is that it is the only worldview that interprets life and does so in a robust, and not just robust, a wonderful way. Perhaps this morning you're here or you're online and you're here because you're just exploring the Christian faith. And actually you're here because you'd like to poke holes in the Christian faith. And I'm glad that you're here and listening. And I want to invite you to poke away. Because our confidence is that the Christian faith, as you examine it, is robust and speaks to all of life and death in a way which no other worldview can really speak to and address. And it is going to speak to us on the subject of death, a subject on which we will all be examined at one point in our lives. And on that, Christianity is the only thing that offers us a robust hope. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to take a first pass, listening through the preacher's reflections in this passage, and then we're going to come back around again, and we're going to consider what God would have us reflect based on the, the preacher's teaching. And I trust that by the time we get to the end, we're going to come to the conclusion and see that although death comes to all, God offers true reward and contentment for those who apply this one life to his work. I'll say that again. That although death comes to all, God offers true reward and contentment to those who apply this one life to his work. So let's go back to the passage again and we'll break it up into a few sections and hear what the preacher has to say to us this first pass through. Let's look again at verse 1. The preacher says, But all of this I laid to heart, examining all it all, that how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts where they live. And after that, they go to the dead. The preacher has examined life and has come to the conclusion that it doesn't seem to matter whether you're good or bad. The same thing happens to everyone. Whether you're a nice person or an especially wicked person, 
you're still subject to love and hate from other people around you. And at the end of it all, everyone faces death. And although he doesn't say it explicitly in this passage, you can hear the echo of a common theme that we've seen throughout this unusual book. The theme of vanity or meaninglessness. If the same happens to everybody, what's the point? And on this key final question of life, if there is no final distinction between the good and the wicked, doesn't it mean that there's not really any ultimate justice in life? And although this apparent conclusion could be drawn throughout human history, from the preacher's time, throughout history to today, we've all lived through the past 14 to 18 months where we've seen this firsthand. I think for many of us, COVID has been a massive nuisance. We've dealt with masks, social distancing, remote learning, remote working. Perhaps some of us have received contracted got COVID and we felt lousy for a while and had to deal with, co- with quarantining. But for a significant number and for their families and for their friends, it's been far more than simply a nuisance. It's turned lives upside down. And for some, it's brought those lives to an end. I'm sure for all of us, though, throughout this past year, whether it's COVID-related or from other causes, Chances are that we've all known someone directly who has died or we know others who are dealing with the death of a loved one. And on this subject of death, just because I vaguely remember what it was like, can I just speak to our teens and our young people at this point of the message? Please don't be putting this message on a category on a shelf for some time in the future. The same event happens to all, old and young, unhealthy and healthy, weak and strong. Just a few months after Kelly and I, we moved our family up here from um, the year we spent in Louisville, we received the tragic news of a seminary student who we knew in that church whose life was abruptly taken away in a car accident. Somebody ran a red light or a stop sign, I forget the details, but his life was taken immediately, leaving a young wife and four young children. The preacher's message to us today applies and speaks to all of us. Over all of these experiences, we hear the preacher's commentary. It's all the same. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, this is an evil Where is the meaning? I see no justice to differentiate good and wicked. The same event happens to all. The preacher goes on in verse 4. 
He says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. It's interesting that after reflecting on death, the preacher draws a contrast with the living. And rather than throwing his arms up in despair over the inevitability of death, of giving up on life altogether, he strikes a positive note about life. That there are grounds for hope for those who are alive today. Because that means that today you can make a difference. That today you can contribute to life, even earning a reward for your work. Rather than concluding that in the face of death that comes and faces us all, concluding that life just isn't worth living, the preacher concludes quite the opposite. In the face of death, life is worth living to the fullest. You can't make any more contributions or gain any more reward once you're dead, he says. So make the most of life now. You and I, the preacher says, we've all been given one life to live. And it comes with the ultimate and literal deadline. There are no extensions and there are no exemptions. Your paper is taken from you and graded as is, whether you've finished writing or not. But until that time comes, we have opportunity to keep writing and to keep living. And so that begs the question, with that knowledge, how then should we live? How do we fill this life? The preacher continues in verse 7. He says, go. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil in which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The preacher says, knowing that we've got one life to live with a clear end point, we should strive to enjoy life. We should strive to be content with where we can, and we should work hard. Enjoy the blessings God's given in good food and in family. You can take care of yourself. You don't have to wear sackcloth and ashes, mourning the inevitability of death. You can get up in the morning, run a comb through your hair, go up and apply yourself to life, working hard at what God has put in front of you. Because there will come a time when someone calls, time's up, and nothing more can be done. So until you hear that, Employ what God has given you. 
your talents, your energy, your resources, your circumstances. Enjoy them and employ them to the fullest. Well, that takes us through the preacher's reflections that we see in this passage. So let's now turn back to it and carefully consider what God would have us reflect on from that teaching. And the first thing we need to realize in that death comes to all, to the good and to the wicked, is that it does raise a fundamental question about justice. But perhaps not the fundamental question that we would first think of. Seeing that death comes to both the good and to the wicked, we might question the place of justice in the world. That lives, the lives of the good and the wicked, come to the same conclusion, the point of death. But just take a little bit longer look. Let's look again at the second part of verse 3. Turn there if you have that verse in front of you. It says, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. That is the true verdict of mankind. Not that every person is fully evil, that is, as evil as we could possibly be, but that each person is full of evil that that is for every part of good that is within inside us, we find evil right there alongside. That we are capable of love and hate, of good and evil, and that even in our love and our goodness, when we know that hate and evil is wrong, and we, we still fall short of our own standards, let alone falling short of God's perfect standards. And even when we are fully mindful of what we are doing and we recognize something to be wrong, when we recognize that sin won't pay off, that the lie that it's holding out in front of us won't materialize, we still indulge. That's the madness that verse 3 speaks of, the folly and delusion of sin that we fall for time and time again. This verdict has applied to all of mankind since the third book, the third chapter of the, the Bible. We've seen before as we've gone through this book of Ecclesiastes that there are many reminders and pointers that take us back to Genesis, and particularly Genesis chapter 3, where we see the effects of sin on mankind and upon God's creation. You'll remember the scene, perhaps, that's set in chapter 2 of Genesis when the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then, just the next chapter later, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall to the temptation of Satan the deceiver and deliberately disobey God eating of the fruit that was forbidden to them, and thereby falling under God's curse, his good and divine right and prerogative to punish disobedience and unrighteousness. So with that in our minds, when we come back to the preacher's question as to the presence of justice in the world, we realize that the question isn't 
Why doesn't death, or sorry, why does death come to all, both to the good and the wicked? Rather, the question should be, why doesn't death come sooner to all? As all are wicked to some degree and deserve God's judgment. In fairness to the preacher, he does still trust that God will bring judgment for both good and evil. If you remember way back in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. But for the preacher, after all of his examination of life and all that God had revealed to him up to that point, he just doesn't see this judgment taking place. And yet, as New Testament believers... We have further insight from God's word and from his revelation. The explanation that holds together both God's right and fair judgment and injustice that we see in the world where good and evil appear to be handled in the same way and come to the same conclusion. A classic passage which helps understand this tension is in Romans chapter 3. We have this to project, I think. We read in Romans chapter 3, starting in 22, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That passage is really a tight capsule of summary of the gospel hope that we hold to. And it gives us an understanding of how these tensions are held together. How God remains just. And how evil can seem to go unpunished. Because God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to take on the form of man, but without sin. He lived a perfect life, perfectly in obedience to his father. And yet... His life ended in death. A willingly given up and received death on the cross where Jesus took upon himself the sins of those he came to save. So that now all who look to him and trust in his death know that he bore their punishment for their sins. And he rose to new life so that we can have confidence that as we as much as we are united to him in his death so we are united to him in his life and we have hope that we can now live free from being bound to sin from the madness of sin and live new life enjoying God's provision and his fatherly care we know that judgment will still come the book of, the writer of the book of hebrews says this, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
he clarifies what the preacher was unclear about. The preacher wasn't sure when is this judgment coming. Hebrews spells it out for us. If Christ doesn't return beforehand, all will die and all will face judgment. And that same writer of Hebrews, he says, if we are to be judged in our sin, then it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We should not expect coming off well if God was to hold us accountable and rightly measure us by his perfect standards. If we actually weigh the seriousness of breaking God's holy laws, of rebelling against the almighty God who created us, just through the power of his word, we should start to tremble at the thought of being held accountable in his courts. Only as we've seen in that passage in Romans 3, we do have hope. We have a wonderful hope that we can flee to Christ Jesus, the one who has borne God's justice on our behalf and has received, we can receive forgiveness through him and the promise of new life. So in the same way as the preacher holds out hope for the living, even in the face of death, so too the Christian can have hope and every reason for hope to live in this life as we live our lives in Christ. Again, the New Testament elaborates further on what we enjoy in Christ that was beyond sight for the preacher of Ecclesiastes. The Apostle Paul goes on in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 6. We have this to project as well. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And just a quick aside, is in the context, and as we saw in, in the, the passage in Romans chapter 3, it's by faith that we receive Christ's redemption and salvation and we are united to him. Baptism is then the expression of that faith and the spiritual reality that we enjoy. So the Apostle Paul says we are baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The truth that is in that, that we are now united to Christ, both in his death and in his new life, now puts a profoundly new meaning to, chapter, to verse 4 of our passage in Ecclesiastes. Verse 4 says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a dead dog is better than a dead lion. Sorry, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, Christ is no dead lion, and he is far more glorious than a living dog. He is the risen lamb. 
the one to whom we are united in his death and in his resurrection and eternal life. So as Christians, we have ample cause for hope in this life. Jesus has saved us from the punishment of sin. And more than that, he's joined us into his new life and his victory over sin and death. So we're no longer bound to sin through this life that we live. Scripture tells us that Christ dying for our sins is the pinnacle of God's expression of his love to us. And that he now works all things together for our good. And as and that's a good that's seen from his eternal and perfect viewpoint. So we are in God's hands. We can trust our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father who could call us home to him at any moment, any day. And that means the fact that he has caused us to remain here for today must be an expression of his love to us and his good plan for us. So we should use today to the fullness of he, that he intends. Sometimes God's love is clear to us. It's palpable. His word resonates within us and we sense his spirit with us. But very often, that's not our experience. For various reasons, as we don't have time to, to get into now. But in those times, we still have faith and hope that we are united to Christ in his life and convinced that God's love is for us. And we can live, we can go through life like one clinging to the chain of a ship's anchor, dropped into deep water and well beyond our sight. We know that the anchor of God's love is secure and immovable, even though we don't see it. We hold on tight as we go through life. So being joined to Christ, we have hope in this life. And death should no longer hold fear or uncertainty for the Christian. So what should our enjoyment of this life look like? And, and how should we intentionally use our effort in the days that God has given us? Again, the New Testament amplifies this preacher's message to us. And Jesus himself teaches us much about this. He taught his disciples about the right way to use life and how to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and to pursue reward from our heavenly Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in, in the book, uh, Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 6, we read how Jesus charged his disciples not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where they are protected from decay and from theft. And in the same chapter, Jesus teaches how to give to the needy, how to pray, how to practice fasting, all as examples of ways to practice and live our lives in right ways to receive a reward from our Heavenly Father. We don't earn our salvation from our Heavenly Father. We've seen that already. This comes, our salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. Through his death and through his resurrection, we have everlasting life. Yet, the question is, how will we invest for that life 
invest today. As Christians, we have opportunity to use this life for eternal reward. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He speaks of the day of judgment when our deeds will be tested to show what sort of work they are, whether we have chosen to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ and built upon that foundation, or whether we've chosen to build upon a different sort of foundation, a foundation that will ultimately be shown to be a temporary and unsecure foundation. We might put all sorts of effort and hard work into something, but if it is not ultimately built on Christ, that it will be shown to be trivial. It will be shown to be trivial. And we will see our efforts go up in smoke. The preacher says at the end of our passage in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. The Christian faith is a practical faith. It certainly engages our heads and our hearts, but God intends our faith to engage our hands as well. And if it doesn't, if your faith doesn't translate into practical effort in your life, then there is something substantial missing from your faith. The passage says, whatever your hand finds to do. We don't always get to choose our most preferred or most comfortable means of doing God's works. Oftentimes, what we find to hand is uncomfortable or certainly not what we would prefer to be doing. And in those times, in those opportunities, we would do well to remember our master. And now his work took him to the cross. A servant is not greater than his master. And our master's spirit is with us and in us to help us and to strengthen us for every work the pleasant and the unpleasant, the preferred and the not-so-preferred. And we would do well as well to be guided by Christ's example in the breadth of the work that he did in his short life on, this, on earth. Jesus applied himself to work that was on the big scale, was grand and strategic in his mission, as well as to work that was small and intimate mundane and spontaneous. He fed more than 5,000 people from a single lunchbox. And he had Peter draw a coin out of the mouth of a fish to pay a tax for the two of them. He taught vast crowds on the right way to understand Old Testament scripture. And he had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a Samaritan woman over a drink of water. For you and I, the application of this passage should be equally broad and encompassing to all of our life. It applies to working hard to perhaps plan and study and prepare for maybe serving in pastoral ministry or as a missionary. But it also applies to working hard to clean up the kitchen because it will bless your family. It applies to working hard and faithfully in your job day in and day out setting a good example to your family, providing for them and to your peers. 
But it also applies to maybe helping your neighbor mow their lawn this weekend, just because it would bless them. It applies to planning and organizing a big church outreach event. And it applies to giving an hour of your time once a month to teach young hearts and minds in our children's ministry classes. With the relaxing of our COVID protocols, we are going to open up church in all sorts of different ways. And so there'll be opportunities to apply your hands to many different things. Again, we didn't arrange this message for this time and know what's going to be happening, but God knows. And he says, put your hands to hard work. Perhaps for you that's joining one of the worship ministry teams, maybe serving in children's ministry, maybe doing something around keeping this building maintained or beautiful and welcoming. There's all sorts of other things. Maybe, and we're going to create context and opportunity for this over the rest of the summer, maybe it just means getting rem- reminding ourselves what it is to enjoy being together, hanging out and talking, sharing in each other's lives and enjoying the fellowship that God has created for us as a church family. Last week, we celebrated <laughs> the contribution of a dear couple who exemplified this verse. Jeff and Mickey Havisto, one of our pastors and his wife, have moved on to the next stage of serving God and his people for them. But for many years, they've demonstrated what it means to work hard at what their hands found to do. Occasionally, we would see that work in action as Jeff stood before us to preach or as Mickey coordinated the building, making this building welcome and attractive for Christmas, for example. But as most of us who knew them, for everything we saw them doing, there were a dozen other things, big and small, that they were quietly getting on with, without complaint. The Havistos demonstrated they understood their lives to be joined to the risen Christ. And that meant they could apply their hands to all that comes before them, knowing that there is a true and lasting reward from our Heavenly Father. And in this they modeled and taught the Christian life that we've seen in our passage this morning. So what will that mean for you? in response to this passage. Let me leave you with a picture, which I trust is helpful, and if it's not, feel free to forget about it. But it's a picture of a calendar or a planner. I don't know if you use these things to coordinate your day-to-day activities, your month-to-month plans, but imagine that you use a, a calendar or a planner, and this isn't just a planner for one year, but it's a planner from today for the rest of your life. And every single entry in that planner is blank, except for the last entry, which just reads, die. That's the reality of what God has given us. It would be a mistake for us to go through life so focused on that last entry that we missed putting things of value in all those blank pages. It would also be a mistake to fill up all those blank pages with all sorts of different things 
without letting that last entry inform what we put on those blank pages. God has given us one book to complete. So let's apply this life with all the strength that God gives us to do. Both works that are big and small. Because the illustration ends not at the last page, but when you get to the last page, the book is closed. You can't put anything more in it. And then we hand it to the master. We place it into his hands. And he will look through it very carefully and with great care and interest. And at the end, you and I have an opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What will you put in that book? That's the option. That's the choices we have before us. Let's pray.